Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Make it kind. Make it kind. M-I-P. With Masamela Matfumo. Mark Thompson. Make it kind. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, a very special guest in studio and a dear, dear uh, queen comrade. Uh, we've done a lot of work together. We'll talk a bit about that. But she has written a book about her life story, about her experience, and we do well to hear about it. She's been involved in many, many things over the years, and we've been involved in many, many things together. Um, and a lot of times what social media, if not the media, can do is um, uh, make caricatures of all of us, and we don't really get to see the real people and get to know them. She's been a frequent guest, of course, on Make It Plain, but now we get to talk a bit about her and her life and her brand-new book, We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders, a memoir of love and resistance. Linda Sarsour is here in studio with us. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. And, and it's a pleasure to have you. Always a great, great pleasure to uh, to speak with you. Uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Um, everybody's telling me I should write a book. I know I should. So I need to ask your advice. Mm-hmm. How do you live in New York and raise children and find time to write a book? Because I can't, I can't figure that out in New York. If you ask my editor, she would tell you that it took me about two and a half years. Um, And I think a lot of other folks who write books um, can do it in a much shorter period of time. But, you know, you're a mom. You're trying to be out here changing the world and, um, you know, don't have the luxury of just sitting down and focusing uh, on writing a book. But it had to be done. And you, Mark, have to do it and find the time for it. Got to leave something for the children and the grandchildren, the great grandchildren. Like, who are the people of our generation who are leaving behind stories so that our grandchildren don't have to look all the way back and only back to Dr. Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders. Like, who are the people of our generation to tell the stories of now? Which is one of the biggest motivations of why I wrote this book. Absolutely, absolutely. You um, are a U.S. citizen. And again, you know, some of the characters would say that you're not or people who agree with you are not. But your father immigrated here, Mm -hmm. correct? 
um, and I know you write in the book, this was around a time, in your words, when Arab immigration was not as much of a red flag as mm-hmm. it is now, right? Tell us a bit about that and how your dad came to be here in America. Absolutely. I mean, my parents are both Palestinians. I'm a descendant of Palestinians, great, 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 great grandparents. And my parents, um, particularly my mother, lived under a military occupation, and her parents wanted her out. And my father um, had left to Palestine, um, you know, in the 19, late 1950s, early 60s, kind of traveled around the Middle East trying to find his foothold. My had an uncle who had already married an American woman, came to America and then petitioned for my father to come to America. Then my father goes back to Palestine, meets my mom, they get married, and then my father brings my mom to the United States. And so my parents' story is one of, you know, similar to many immigrant families. Like, they had, my father had a decision. Did he want to raise his children in Palestine under a military occupation, or did he want to take the opportunity to find a wife, bring her to America, to give us the opportunity that he would have never had in Palestine? And that's the decision my father made. And he came to America, and he fit a lot of the stereotypes of, like, Arabs. Um, and, you know, he came and was working at a bodega, start, you know, bought his own bodega, which... Uh, at one point in New York City, m- majority of the bodegas um, and, and kind of corner mm. stores were owned by Palestinians. And as time comes by, you know, go- goes by now, it's majority. You'll see a lot of Yemenis own um, bodegas mm. in New York mm. City. And so that's who my father was and his that's his immigration story. Um, this was in the 70s mm-hmm. when, when he came here. What was going on in Palestine at, at that time? I mean, ever since um, after 1967, it's just always been, you know, we are under a military occupation, which means that there is just military everywhere. You mm-hmm. know, you can be at any moment arrested. There's no there's no trials. You could be indefinitely detained. Um, so people, it, a lot of Palestinians try to find different places around the world to just kind of go and live and rebuild their lives um, and also to support their Palestinian families who stayed behind. You know, you come to America, you work, you send your money back home. Mm-hmm take care of your mother, your father, whoever your extended family is. And that's really what my parents did um, on both sides in, you know, my mom supporting her family. My mom was able to then help my uncles on her side to immigrate to the United States of America. I see. I see. Now, your your dad came first. Your mom came later. Mm -hmm. Um, You come along and you. So what is the, the cultural thing is, is best? Is it best for the first child to be a boy? That's what everybody wishes for. Everybody wishes for that. I mean, I'm not going to try to cloak it, deny it. Um, (laughs) In Arab culture, it is very welcome that your first child um, be a son because people, fathers are are not called by their first name. Um, They're called Abu, which means the father of and whatever your son's name is. So my father had one daughter and then two and then three and then four and then five. And so for a really long time (laughs) in New York City amongst the Muslim American community, Arab American, Palestinian American community, he was called Abu Linda. And my father had something extraordinary about him he was just very proud of that he actually named his bodega in new york city after me it was called linda sarsour spanish american food center in crown heights wow and a lot of people were like why are you naming your bodega after her like why don't you wait till you have a son because that's what people do and my father's like why do i gotta do that he's like what if god don't give me a son yeah he's like i'm very content with what i have and that's just who my father has always been um there's actually a really funny saying uh, in arabic that doesn't rhyme in english but it does in arabic where when people ask my father about you have five daughters and he eventually has two sons and my father would still say to people my daughters are just on a whole different level than my sons he's like i don't know what you people were waiting around for these sons for because you know sons are great but 
they're not like daughters. Like we take care of our parents. You know, we we cook for them. We come and see them. We're like around them. Girls are just got are on a whole other level. And my yeah. father just says that till this day. Well, not only that. I mean, obviously, you've done all of that and more as an activist. Mm-hmm. And I think people expect again. It's not just obviously in Muslim society, but in a lot of cultures, people expect the alpha male. Mm-hmm. But you have been kicking butt and taking <laughs> names more than a lot of dudes <laughs> I know. You know, mm-hmm. so that you you couldn't have asked for anything more. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, when I was growing up. You know, Mark, I had to be that. I had to be that for my family. My mother, English is not her first language. I, okay. I had to translate for my mother at the schools. Mm-hmm. I went with her to medical appointments. I was the I was the person who filled out all the forms. I was eight years old on the phone with the gas company, with the electric company, mm-hmm. helping my mom just put stuff together while my father was working 14 to 16 hours a day. So since a very young age, this is just who I am. I was always yeah. the boss of my sisters and brothers. They know till now, like, what I say goes in this family because, yeah. you know, that's just who I had to be. I was forced into being in this kind of mom, you know, leadership position at a very young age. Yeah, yeah. And and not uncommon for uh, the first generation child of immigrants. Mm-hmm. That's usually what you what you have to do. Absolutely. You know, because it, it's funny. When I moved to New York as a single father with my son, what, 10 years ago now, mm-hmm. Linda, and he was like six or seven. And my show would come on in the evening, so a lot of evenings he was home by himself. And everybody else was like, from from where I grew up in Nashville to where I lived in D.C., well, you, you a child can't be at home that time of night by himself, Mark. I said, but that's not true in New York. Mm-hmm. Because so many younger kids in New York, because of the way parents have to work, especially if they're immigrants, have to stay home to care for their other siblings. So like you're saying, you're seven, eight years old talking to the phone company. Mm-hmm. That's that's not, It may not be like that in any other city, Listen, but in New York, that's real. I was babysitting my <laughs> sisters and brothers, and, and what people, you know, what I what I wanted to tell in my, my story was that when I was 10 years old, I was already old, the oldest of the seven. So imagine I was 10, and my mother already had six yeah, that were younger than me. Yeah, yeah. And so my mom's not about to go to the supermarket with all these kids or go <laughs> no, to, a, you know. No. So then I had to be home to, you know, make sure they were taken care of, making sure they didn't hurt or harm themselves. And I know that at some point somebody would have probably been like, if they would have known we were home alone, probably would have called ACS on us. But there's no other way to survive. And yeah. my parents just didn't have the type of support network at the time. And that's what we have to do. You just got to step into it. And I'm, you know, my parents, you know, I think they did a hell of a good job. Um, we, you know, with all my siblings, siblings and and just grateful for their sacrifices because my parents sacrificed a lot to yeah. come to this country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in that sacrifice, did it did it end up paying off in terms of your loved ones back home and your loved ones being able to come over here? Have, have your parents been able to make the most out of the situation? Absolutely. Okay. And that's why I always say to people like, you know, while I criticize this country, you know, mm-hmm. all the time, I also love this country because it mm-hmm. did give my parents an opportunity that they would not have otherwise had if they had stayed living under military occupation. And it mm-hmm. would actually have stifled my life if I were to have been born under military occupation. Now, my parents have been able to make sh- ensure that our family in Palestine lives with some sort of dignity, at least at the bare minimum they can't obviously end the military occupation you have no control over that but at least making sure that people have the basic necessities um you know to to live a life of whatever dignity you can living yeah. under military occupation my both my grandparents have i mean both sets of my grandparents have been able to come to america my grandmother on my mom's side had a green card so she was able to travel back and forth but she wanted to die in palestine we kept telling mm. her just become an american and stay and she said my heart is wow. in my land. And so she um, ended up going back to Palestine and, and passed away there. Oh, wow. Bless her heart. Um, when did you become 
politically aware of your people's plight mm-hmm. back home in pa- Palestine? Were, were your parents very politically active? Did they talk a lot about it? Or did you just kind of come into that through your own maturation? I wrote about this in my book, and a lot of people told me it would be controversial, and people were like, why do you even want to go there? But I wrote about this in my book. It was 1987. I was seven years old. I went to Palestine as I was going almost every summer because my parents wanted me to be connected to my right. roots and learn the language and learn the dialect and my colloquial dialect. And so I went to um, Palestine, and then one morning my mom was like, get up, got to go early. Get up in the morning. It was like 5 o'clock in the morning. We take like a car, and then we got to get off, the, get, you know, park the car, then go all the way on a bus some really far away place. And I'm like, where are we going? And then eventually we end up at this like makeshift warehouse-looking building. I go in, and there's all these families around and people around, and it doesn't look like a happy place. And I'm like, why are we here? Eventually I find out that we were coming with my grandmother to visit my uncle, which is my mother's brother, who was imprisoned by the Israeli security forces. And I went in there, I saw all these families talking to their loved ones through these like bars. And, mm. you know, my, my, it was me, my mom, and my uncle's wife with us, um, and my grandmother. And, you know, talked to my uncle, and that's when I met my uncle, my mom's brother. And I'm just like, you know, he was in a cell with a couple of other men. And it was interesting because you could actually give them stuff. Like my grandmother made food, and you were mm-hmm. like passing them food. So it wasn't like a high maximum security type facility. And so as a seven-year-old, you know, we do all that. I leave and I'm with my mom. I'm like, what happened? Like, what did he do wrong? Because in America, you're taught that if you're in jail, you did you yeah, committed a crime. crime. You're right. wrong. You're a bad person. And so I was really confused as a young person. And my mom was like, your uncle did nothing wrong. Your uncle um, was walking home with his couple of guys from work and got arrested and picked up with all these men. No trial, no due process. And he was, you know, sitting in a prison. Um, And then that was when my mom kind of started explaining to me, even as a young child, about who I was in Palestine and why there's military all around, why there are checkpoints, um, and why, you know, uh, who our people are. And ever since then, since a very small seven-year-old, my, like, innocence was, like, shattered. Mm. Um, And now I understood, even as a young child, like, this idea of Palestinian. So back in New York, my mom took me to protest, like, (laughs) I was the first thing you asked me is like, where are you from? As a, as a young kid, all my elementary school teachers would tell you, where are you from? Palestine. I'm actually from Brooklyn, but it was so important to me. And my parents taught me how important that you actually hear a lot of Palestinian American children born in the United States say they're Palestinian first because it's such an important connection to a, an oppressed people and to their lineage and heritage because every day someone's trying to take it from us. Right, and the right. only place that we can control it is within ourselves and within our words and within our voice and that's kind of when I feel like I was firstly politicized on Palestine and then of course as you know 9-11 happened um, and I was a college student and that's another moment that really radicalized me being a sheltered child in New York although I knew that there were bad things that happened and things happened around me in the news and shootings and you know things like that but I still felt pretty privileged. I felt like I live a good life. My parents are taking care of me. I feel good. And then 9-11 happened, and the things that I witnessed here in New York, Mark, are, I mean, I still have PTSD. Um, I watched, like, grown men be t- being taken out of buildings in, like, Bay Ridge and, like, asked to lay down on the streets outside in the community. And you're watching this, and you're like, where do we live? Like, mm-hmm. what is going on here? And seeing the fear and seeing women coming to the mosque crying, saying, you know, quote, quote, men came to our house and picked up, like, our husband or our brother or our son. And I was like, this is not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and as someone who's bilingual, who's born and raised in this community, I felt like a responsibility to my people. And so I started volunteering and doing translation for women um, who are li- literally looking for their 
loved ones in like some hellhole. Like it was like a black hole. I didn't even know where to start. How do you, what do you mean people picked up your husband and you don't know who the people are even? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of another moment of my radicalization that got me here. Um, you obviously too, and one of the things I appreciate most about you is your intersectionality. You know, some people can only kind of stay in their space of activism. I'm just an African-American activist on behalf of African-Americans, or vice versa. I'm just an LGBT activist. I'm only interested in LGBT issues. But you, the thing I respect about you is mostly and, and love about you is that you have a, a very clear uh, perspective on all of the aspects of civil and human rights struggle mm -hmm. in this country. So you can talk about Malcolm X and you can talk about Dr. King and, and, and everything else. So I, I assume that coming back, having that experience, obviously inspired you to learn even more about people who have been standing up in this country for their rights. Absolutely, and there's more in my book about you know my, my experience in high school. I went to John Jay High School in New York right. City in the 90s, which was at the time, um, you know, many people know in New York in the 90s, like the gang activity was very prevalent. Um, and in, pr in particular at my high school it was but for some reason, Mark, even as it was in my school, in, fa in fact, they ended up closing down John Jay High School because right. of the kind of um, poor performance and also, or at least they claimed poor performance and also the gang activity and things that were happening. But for some reason, I felt the safest amongst the black students in my school. There was some sort of affinity that I had to them um, and the way that they embraced me. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting, in the 90s, there was also this moment of hip hop where there was a lot of, um, believe it or not, references to like Gaza and to like Palestine and PLO. And there was something even kind of cool amongst the black kids about me even being Palestinian, which was just really interesting. <laughs> and then my father owned a store in Crown Heights. Right, and so after right. school, I would go to, uh, to my dad's store. And then after we finished our homework, where are we going to go? We we're going to play in the neighborhood. And the neighborhood was a predominantly African-American, right, Caribbean, right, right. and some Puerto Ricans. And those were the people that I, so I went to school with uh, in a school that was 80% black to then going after school to a community that was also potentially around 80% black um, and other people of color. And so that's the people I grew up with. So this idea of me, I didn't understand intersectionality at that moment. I didn't understand the social justice stuff. But what I did know is that there was something that connected me to these black kids. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I watched what was happening um, you know, on 9-11 and I started going back to thinking about my high school experience, my high school had NYPD cops before that was a thing now. And wow. now we say schools out of, you know, cops out of school. Yeah. But when I was going to John Jay, they already were in my schools. And I actually talk about, in particular, a fight that happened between two young Latino kids who were fighting over a girl, like some normal stuff that kids mm -hmm. do. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, cops come into the cafeteria, their guns drawn, kids getting arrested. And I'm just like shook, like, you know, as a kid, you're like, wait a minute, it's not that serious, folks. Mm -hmm. This is just two kids fighting right. over a girl. And then you start thinking school to prison pipeline. And you start connecting it to the social justice stuff that we know right now and kind of the movements that we're a part of right now. But the, my fundamental principle and belief, and I've said this to you and I've said this to many people before, in particular to Palestine, and I've heard Jeremiah write, I heard so many other black elders talk about this. I believe wholeheartedly that the freedom of the Palestinian people will never happen without the freedom of black people in America. And for me, I'm invested in this idea of black liberation because I see it as the foundation of the liberation of all of us. And so for me, it actually makes no sense for me to be a Palestinian that fights for the Palestinians only because I actually see a system in America that has intertwined our struggles in a way that is so 
connected, that there's actually no way. I don't even understand how people do th- do it separately. It just right. makes no right. sense to do it that way. Right. And, and you and I were talking just before we sat down about Mandela and his relationship with, with Arafat. And, you know, he got it and, and that was there. I, I wish more people got the solidarity of, of that struggle. I remember when I shared with you, folks, Linda didn't know I had actually taken a I met Yasser Arafat and took a picture with him. So one day I found, I was going through some old stuff, and I texted to Linda, and she almost lost her mind. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. But it was me and Jesse Jackson standing next to, <laughs> and me shaking Yasser Arafat's um, uh, hand. As I heard you talk about the police in your high school, and, and that is a compelling story in the book, I, I guess at some point it also dawned upon you that there's occupation at home in Palestine, and here there's a form of occupation in terms of the police in our communities, isn't it? Absolutely. And occupation is occupation. Occupation is occupation. I mean, one of the places that was the most clear, like you could not debate it, was when I went to Ferguson. Right, right. It was young black kids standing up against a line of law enforcement, some of them looking like in military gear, literally full military gear, tanks, tear gas. And that was another crystallizing moment for me that kind of reinforced what I was doing was right. And when you look at the images of Ferguson, they're very similar to images of young Palestinians Mm -hmm. in Palestine. Mm -hmm. Um, And to be honest with you also, that was the moment, if you remember, during the Ferguson uprisings when the young people from Gaza, who barely have internet access, were watching these young black kids all the way across the world in a place they probably never heard of, because I didn't even know there was a such thing as Ferguson before Ferguson happened. And young people in Gaza, young Palestinians, were sending kids in Ferguson how to make makeshift masks (laughs) to protect themselves from tear gas, the idea of how to wash your eyes out with milk and things like that, that of course, you know, I would never have to learn, but of course they do because they, that's the nature of how they live. And then when you went to Ferguson, the, the way that the young people in Ferguson embraced the kids of Gaza. So when I went to Ferguson, I looked around. I was like, why are there Palestinian flags here? It wasn't the Palestinians that were holding the Palestinian flag. Right, right. It was this beautiful, natural, transformational solidarity. And it was cross, across borders, across oceans. And it was back to that whole thing, like people who are fighting for people they don't know. Yeah, and it was yeah. just absolutely one of the most moving experiences of my life. And one of the things that's also been compelling to me, I mean, the Palestinian flag and the African liberation flag share three of the same colors, red, black, and green. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's always kind of like, yeah, okay, we need to, we need to acknowledge that. Um, you talked about rap and hearing in high school. At, speaking of rap, at some point along the way in the past few years, you became public enemy number one to some people how did that even come about what what was it that brought about i mean because it went it went viral for a minute man Mm -hmm. you were the most notorious um muslim or muslim american or palestinian american here in the united states i mean obviously you know people do what they need to do to raise money and promote themselves without realizing it it ultimately garnered even more support and empathy for you and opened the door for more people to hear your voice, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, really what it was, I mean, be prior to the Women's March and my participation in the Women's March, I had a couple of folks out there that were, you know, would consider me, I mean, I never considered them to be my enemies, but they considered me right. to be their enemies. Um, and it was local, you know, little scuffles here and there, you know, every once in a while in the media, particularly with right-wing Zionists and folks that were, 
um, just anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian Islamophobes. You know, I, I sparred with a woman named Pamela Geller here in New York City right, around the Ground right. Zero Mosque and some ads that went up, you know, things like that. Manageable. <laughs> um, and then I went to the Women's March. And right, right. that was the moment that just literally blew the minds of every Islamophobe, every right-wing Zionist in this country in particular, and even some neoliberals and, you know, um, what Bernie calls establishment people. We're having a debate now about what the establishment yeah, is. Yeah. It was almost like I was doing, I was fine until I, like, passed the, a line that was drawn for me. Right. So it was cute. You were wearing a hijab. You were Palestinian. Right, you know, you right. were in the immigrant rights movement doing criminal justice reform. You were cool. The minute I got to the Women's March and I had this huge platform where I was actually resonating with, in particular, white women it blew their minds. Crossover. I was, I, yeah, I just literally <laughs> went into a crossover. And it was similar, and, I, and I, I will never compare myself, you know, to the sacrifices or the political time of someone like Malcolm X, but it was kind of that crossover that Malcolm X had right, where right. he went from nation um, to Islam to, like, Sunni Orthodox Islam and then kind of branched out a little right. bit, went to Hajj and came back and was like, look, I'm bigger than all this. Yeah. I can actually even do, you know, and his rhetoric just became intersectional and really brought a lot of people mm -hmm. to the table, which is, I believe, why he ended up getting assassinated. It was too much yeah. for people to handle. And so there I was, the audacity of a Palestinian, American, uh, pro-boycott, divestment sanction, you know, someone who loudly and proudly said Black Lives Matter, someone that proudly and loudly has criticized the Democratic Party, um, and that really was a truth teller. Like, I just always told the truth because that's what I was taught. And I never really cared about the consequences. And unfortunately, as you know, Mark, there then ended up being really potentially grave consequences to yeah. what I was doing. Um, death threats. Death threats. You know, uh, the, just my family just re being unsafe, you know, mailed right. to my house. Um, mm -hmm. As you know, I was on this, an assassination list with the guy that was sending around those uh, pipe bombs to apparently what he believed were notable enemies of Donald Trump, um, you know, people who knew, who, who know where I am and when I am, which is why I don't always promote the exact time of where right. I'm going to be. But unfortunately, now I'm in a situation where I have no choice. I'm doing a book tour. Right. And so the right. heightened security around that. So you, for me, it's just, you know, for me, what it really was, it's just the audacity of just being who I am and being unapologetic. Like, how dare I be unapologetic and how dare I be wholly myself um, every day and, 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 some people just don't like truth tellers, and yeah. we know this from the history of this country. Yeah, and you know, and I share this with our, our mutual comrade Tamika Mallory. Mm -hmm. It's true about Malcolm. I mean, once you 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 broaden your base, it's almost a bigger threat. If Absolutely. people can compartmentalize you, Dr. King, we just gonna keep him in Montgomery in Alabama. But then, when the whole world began to embrace him, so oh whoa, the minute the just, Poor People's <laughs> Campaign came up with an intersectional economic justice right. platform that then brought in poor white people, that's when Dr. Martin Luther King right. became a threat. That's when Dr. Right. Martin Luther King went from being a, working on domestic civil rights issues and started looking abroad about, uh, you know, looking at Vietnam and looking even right, at foreign policy, right. in fact, he wrote a letter in 1967 that nobody wants to talk about. You know, a lot of people portray Dr. Martin Luther King as being pro-Israel. He was pro-whatever was there at the time and what was around him. But eventually he also learned and he evolved and he ventured out. And the minute that he started becoming kind of more of a global activist and started understanding the struggles and how we connect around the world, he became a threat, similar yeah. to Malcolm X. And so for yeah. me, it I can't not be that because I am already an intersectional person. I'm right. connected to Palestinians in Palestine. I'm Muslim. I, I'm connected to 1.8 billion people around the world. Um, I'm also Brooklyn born. I'm, I, have a, I have a particular story that resonates with a lot of people. I mean, my book is a book 
that is going to resonate with children of immigrants all across the country. It's going to resonate with people who went to public schools in New York City. It's going to resonate on multiple levels um, for people who are going to kind of see the Brook, the Spike Lee Brooklyn that I des- that, that right. I described. Like right. I describe a Brooklyn that many people remember, and unfortunately, we're also losing. I mean, mm. there's gentrification. You right. know, the things that I describe are not exactly the same right now in t- in 2020. Um, and so I'm hoping that people also, and another reason, you know, for me, the most important thing about my book is that it's in my own words, you know, and I haven't had that chance. Um, people have been able to define me, whether good or bad. The, you know, whoever wants to call me a progressive and when they want to call me a liberal and when they want to call me, you know, an intersectional organizer, whatever they believe is positive. And then I've also gotten the, the negative. And my thing is like, let me tell you who I am and this is who I'm going to be and who I was and where I came from. And you can't take that from me. And even yeah. if I'm no longer on this earth, that that's going to live beyond me. And I'm hoping a little Muslim girl 50 years from now picks that up and inspires her just like Malcolm X inspired me. How does it feel, though? It, it had to still feel powerful and gratifying to have been a part of the largest and most intersectional women's movement in history. It would have never happened without me, without Tamika, without Carmen. And I'm very proud of the Women's March, I tell people all the time, there would not have been the type of resistance that we've had to Donald Trump if it wasn't for the Women's March and the sacrifices that we put into building that, not only that first march, but building the kind of ideology. You know, we helped also to mainstream a lot of these, um, you know, current conversations that we're having. And my thing is like, you know, in my book, it's again, don't take away from us what we have offered or given or gifted to this country. And I don't think that many people are doing that, but there are some. And so for us, we made history because that's what me and Tamika and Carmen do. Um, We are history makers. We are cycle breakers. And uh, there is no doubt in my mind um, that I have made my ancestors and my parents and my great-grandparents proud um, of, again, holding the people that mean the most to me and putting forth my story in a way that is full of dignity and integrity. My book is not a pity book. This is not a book about all the bad things that have happened to me. You know, there's obviously traumatic moments that have nothing to do with the trolls and the death threats and all that. I don't even hardly even mention that in my book. There's maybe one or two little excerpts maybe that I share that. Because my book is a book of a survivor of racial and religious violence in this country. It's also a, a story of victory. I have won many times. I've won campaigns here in New York City. I've won many times, and my people have won. And so this is a book that's kind of like a memoir slash like an activist manifesto. And yeah, what I hope yeah. people also get out of it, there's nothing extraordinary about me, Mark. I'm a daughter of immigrants. My parents were lower middle class. Like I'm a seven. I was born. I was living in apartments in New York City with seven children and two parents, nine people. And somehow <laughs> I got here. Yeah. Um, and I want people. I'm a mom. I got kids. I got to go do laundry and things like that. So right, I hope people right. say, wow, like I don't have to be a trained <laughs> organizer. I don't have to be woke, woke, you know that you actually evolve, and I have evolved. Yeah, you know, like yeah. the things that I believe right now or the things that have crystallized more for me now probably are not things that I believed 20 years ago. And I always say, thank the Lord there was no social media because God knows what kind of conversations I was having when I was like 17, 18, 19. I'm way far past where I was 20 years ago, and my experience and my family and the community that I'm from, even my community has evolved immensely over the last 20 mm-hmm. years. Um, and so I hope that this book just shows you my journey. Um, but it is often... Or seemingly ordinary people that end up doing extraordinary things historically. You clearly have done that. Um, you've evolved. So right now there's a lot of conversation. You're a Bernie Sanders supporter. Mm-hmm. You just said something maybe Bernie should just say. 
like you say, you know, things you might have said 20 years ago that you no longer feel the same way about today. Maybe Bernie should say that because people are like running around and say, oh, he said this 20 and 30. Some of this stuff he said 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's like folks are uh, pulling their hair out. What do you think about that? How do you think the campaign is going? And does Bernie, will Bernie um, have the most viable argument for the Democratic nomination? I, I, I believe in the movement that's behind Bernie Sanders, and I actually do quite believe that he has definitely evolved and has owned a lot of things in the past. Like, for example, he's the only candidate in this race, uh, Mark, that believes that we should restore voting rights to the currently incarcerated, not the formerly incarcerated only, right, but the right. currently incarcerated. His criminal justice plan, the, 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 the crushing of private prison industries, these are not things that Bernie was talking about. There are some things he was talking about consistently for 40 years, but there are definitely areas, particularly on immigration, the reason why he got the endorsements of groups like Mijente and others is because he has evolved immensely on immigration. He's also evolved on guns. I mean, he comes from a state where people like guns. But he's also evolved on banning of assault weapons and, um, you know, focusing on some more gun reform. Um, So he's not he may not be the guy that's going to be like, you know, I'm going to sit and apologize for what I believe. But I I say to people just it's not about words like Michael Bloomberg is going around apologizing to everybody. Um, My my thing is like I'm not just looking for an apology. I'm looking for evolution and I'm looking for you to be better on the issues. You know, Bernie has a, has evolved even on Palestine. Like, I think there's some positions that he holds now that he may not have held 30, 40 years ago. Um, and so for me, I think that Bernie just got it. And what I always, what I just want to say, to because I actually wrote about Bernie in my book, too. And the reason why I wrote about Bernie um, in my book is I wrote about my experience on his campaign in 2016. And this is something that I want people to know about Bernie. Um, in 2016, they embraced a fast-talking, truth-telling Palestinian supporter of boycott, divestment, sanctions, someone who has been a vehement critic of the state of Israel. They gave me platforms, and they made me a national surrogate for the campaign. And that is something that needs to hold something, that Bernie Sanders is not afraid of people who haven't been in the Democratic Party on the margins. Like The Democratic right. Party has not wanted to touch us and touch Palestine and touch some of the issues that we're working on. And Bernie has forced them into a place to reckon with, these people are part of our movement, so you are going to have to figure it out. And so that's what I say to people all the time. Bernie's not perfect. I I know that. I mean, I'm not out here being like, oh, Bernie's going to save us all. But what Bernie can do is that the movement that is behind him is going to hold him accountable when he gets to that White House. And it's going to put us on a pathway to some sort of transformation in this country. I don't want to just beat Trump. Because, you know, you know this. You talk to black people, go, go to South Carolina, people like really... Y'all think Trump is that bad? Mm. And what they really mean to say is, like, it's been bad out here. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah Trump's bad. I'm, you know, No one says Trump is not bad. But they were like, so were the other presidents before him. Like, people were still right. getting killed on the streets of our community. People were still in poverty. There was still gentrification. There's still redlining. There's still all kinds. The climate, the, the racial injustice on a systematic level has been here. So to say that defeating Trump is the way that, we're, that that's the main goal, that's not my goal. And I think that's actually a, a, a priority for Bernie, but it's not the only priority. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that he has some some programs that are in line with MLK's Poor People Campaign. Um, he has uh, programs in line with FDR. And I feel like there could be an opportunity for us to be really on a process or in a pathway to a better future, not one that's going to come quickly. It might not come in my lifetime, but I think that we got to just stop saying we're going to beat Trump only. Linda, you mentioned 9-11 and what was going on with um, some of our Muslim brothers mm-hmm. and sisters. It was, in fact, 
um, um, in another of Bernie's opponents, 10 years mayor, Bloomberg, where there was a pretty significant Muslim surveillance program going on, wasn't that? And I mean, we talk about, Elizabeth Warren used the term, you know, if we do this up to November, there'll be just drip, drip, drip of stories about Mayor Bloomberg. The one that, you know, we've, the drip on the stop and frisk has started. The drip on the sexual harassment suits has started. But we ain't even got started on the Muslim surveillance drip. And that's oh, it was, very real. It was absolutely scandalous. I mean, Tom Galati, the chief intelligence officer at the NYPD at the time, in a deposition, I didn't say this, he said this. He said, this program brought us zero leads. Like, it was, right. there was no reason for us to have even wasted all of our manpower and, and tax dollars on this program. Tom Galati said that. I didn't say that. This is a program that targeted organizations serving immigrants and refugees. My organization was a target. The NYPD opened what they had called at the time terrorism enterprise investigations. On what? On an organization that gets city funding? Like, our books are all open. Because we get city funding, we are accountable to the, to the city in, in the ways and the services that we were providing. We're talking about refugees, right. women and children. We right. were teaching English to immigrants. You know what I mean? We were providing legal services to people who are in deportation. Like, we were a human service organization. We were targeted by the NYPD. In fact, my organization, when I was naive, <laughs> back in the early 2000s, there was a, a league, a soccer league. Arabs love soccer. I actually, as a, just thinking, oh, build relationships between law enforcement and community, because, you know, I was naive at the time. Our organization won a citywide soccer <laughs> competition where we were encouraging our young people to play soccer as part of the NYPD league. Come to find out after the Associated Press did the leaks and we did all the exposés, they were monitoring the children and the families of the kids playing soccer. Wow. Wow. Where they practice, they literally had a map, like here's where the kids practice, like what are you yeah, doing? Yeah. And so it was invasive, it was it was targeting 250 mosques, they sent informants on whitewater rafting trips with NYU students, you know, like the Muslim Student Association, You were, they were um, cataloging all of our businesses, all of our cafes, um, they were trying to uh, uh, put, uh, you know, put confidential informants on the boards of our institutions. I mean, this was on a whole nother level. Mm -hmm. No one's mm -hmm. talking about it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the you know the AP won a freaking Pulitzer Prize. Right. That's Writing how, about that's, it. That's, that's how, how like, right. ex like, that's how, like, oh, my God, it was that they won a Pulitzer Prize on. Yeah, yeah. Um, Trump, like everything else, he pretends to have the answer of everything, and I'm doing the best. So he floats this Palestine and Israel peace plan. Uh, and... I mean, it was pretty much dead on arrival when it came to the Palestinian people, wasn't that? Oh yeah. I mean, you can't start peace plans without the all the involved parties. Right. Like he did. He, he literally put forth a plan that had no input, no conversations with the Palestinian people, and it's a it's a plan that like who if if anybody came to offer you a plan that said you're going to lose more when you've already lost a lot, mm -hmm. you're just not going to go into. It. And then the frame becomes that we're the ones that don't want you know, peace right, and right. whatnot. And, you know, I don't remember who said this, but it was definitely a great leader at some point. You can't negotiate with, you know, you got to be free to negotiate. That's right. You know, and, you, and, and the idea that the Palestinian people are living under the longest standing military occupation and technically are living in open air prisons and we're somehow supposed to sit and, and negotiate um, with our oppressors who don't even want to bring us to the table. Right. And right, and then right. we're just supposed to sit back and roll over and say, okay, we're going to take it. And I, and I'm, you know, I'm, I think in, in consensus, Palestinians and the diaspora and Palestinians, you know, in Palestine were like, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. At, at, appropriately. So, 
folks, um, well, you hear it in her own voice. She's not a bystander, and she is saying that none of us should be. I mean, we're, we're not here just to sit around and be spectators, but in fact to get involved. Uh, this is her story in her own voice, and as much of us uh, are on Twitter, as many of us that are on Twitter and worship Twitter and obsessed with Twitter, Twitter only goes so far. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't tell this story in a tweet mm-hmm. or in a, in a th- thread <laughs> of tweets. And the responses to her on Twitter, though those Twitter is, an, is a means, but it's not an end. Uh, this is her story and the story of her family. And as she also alluded to, any one of us that is a part of an immigrant family, an immigrant experience, will have no trouble relating to her memoir, We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders, a memoir of love and resistance. And young for a memoir, memoir. so there'll be another one. I think Du Bois wrote about two or three autobiographies and so did Frederick Douglass. So this will be your first one. Yes. We'll get another one. Yeah, you know, when I'm older, 20 I might or 30 have years or 30 so. years from now. <laughs> 20, 30 years from now. So I'd appreciate people getting my book um, yes. just also to show support. And anytime there's a black woman writer or an indigenous woman or a Latina or, uh, of course, a Palestinian woman really supporting our, us as writers because it sends a signal to publishers that we are worth it and we are worth the investment yeah. and in hopes that it opened the doors for more Muslim women and more Absolutely. women of color. Um, and so you can get more information at lindasarsour.com. I also did an audio book for folks that don't want to read and want to just listen on the train or going to work. And it's in my voice and it's in my Brooklyn accent. So if you're yearning and you don't <laughs> live in Brooklyn anymore and you're yearning to just hear that voice, it's my voice. And the foreword by the legendary civil rights icon, Harry Belafonte. Uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Linda, uh, we thank you. Congratulations on the book. Everyone check this out. We're going to make this required reading for our audience and then there may be a pop quiz on it, so mm-hmm. stay tuned for that. LindaSarsour.com. Also on the website, people can find out where you're doing book signings and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff around the country, so she'll be around and you can see her and, and touch her uh, and and interact with her. Uh, one of our great sheroes. We appreciate you, Linda. I appreciate Mm -hmm. you. Much love to you and the family. Folks, we are not here to be bystanders. A memoir of love and resistance. Right here with us on Make It Plain. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, subscribe to Make It Plain and Get Woke daily. Check out makeitplain.com to subscribe. If all minds are clear... It has been made plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. 
No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.